right? So a lot of people report, yeah, you know, I had a, a bowl of oatmeal and I got halfway through and I'm like face down in it, right? Because I fell asleep. You know, lately I've been talking to quite a few NFL guys right. that have this, that have a concern. They've even started on a ketogenic diet. Uh, so, you know, for example, just not only the energy component, but also the neuroinflammation. Um, so I'm a big fan of, you know, what is it you're trying to measure? And then also what is the cost of doing that? And that's an indication that in a fasted state, their body is not making ketones. That's amazing. Um, Dominic, is there any other uh, new research that you can leak or, or give hints about? <laughs> My head's still spinning. I'm like, what do you want more? And I'm becoming increasingly interested in acetate because all the animal work from the last two decades suggests that acetate is really providing that anti-seizure, yeah. anti-convulsant effect. And then, you know, the new study, the one that I just mentioned, shows that it has direct effects on muscle protein synthesis and muscle regeneration acetoacetate does so you are listening to the optimal performance podcast the opp is brought to you by natural stacks natural stacks makes 100 natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal for more on building optimal mental and physical performance into your life, keep it right here listening to the OPP or visit naturalstacks.com. Brian Muncie is probably the smartest guy I know. Trust me, Muncie is the nutrition guy. Ryan Muncie's out there trying to make the world better for all of us. The Optimal Performance Podcast is bold, edgy, creative, entertaining, and epic. Brian Muncy is my go-to guy. Brian Muncy is he's the first guy I call. He's making people's lives better. Brian Muncy's an innovator. What's up, Optimizers? I'm your host, Ryan Muncy. Welcome to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. So we're going to get right into it this week. We've got an amazing episode for you. This is one that I have been looking forward to and wanting to record for almost six months now. Uh, busy schedules and a little bit of experimentation were required before this one. But we've got two great guests today, uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson and Dominic Diagostino, who is the expert when it comes to ketones. So we are talking all things ketones, uh, ketogenic diet, ketosis, who should use this, who shouldn't use this, more importantly, um, we'll be talking about exogenous ketones, lots of really cool information here for you. Both of these guys are incredibly, uh, well-versed and, and intelligent. Um, so we're going to cut this intro as short as possible. We're going to get to these guys, a uh, couple of housekeeping notes, as always, you will be able to go to naturalstacks.com to see the blog post for this episode of the OPP. Uh, we did not record this with video, uh, but there will still be a video on there. Uh, more importantly, you'll be able to get the, the links to all the studies and any other uh, resources and show notes that you want to be able to get at that blog post. Um, please go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review, let us know how much you like the OPP, and if the Optimal Performance Podcast is helping you, if you enjoy it, if you're a regular listener, Please share it with the people in your life who are into the same stuff that you're into, 
uh, and people who you know would benefit from the things that we're talking about. So uh, we appreciate your time, appreciate your support, and I'm going to turn it over to these guys. Enjoy it. So I'm an associate professor at the University of South Florida, Morsani College of Medicine, and in the Department of Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology, and I'm also a senior research scientist at the Institute for Human and Machine Cognition. And I study nutrition interventions uh, for a wide range of uh, pathologies and, and performance applications. Cool. I'm Dr. Mike T. Nelson. I teach for Globe University, run my own business through Extreme Human Performance, uh, did some certifications through Eat to Perform. I did a PhD in exercise physiology, primarily more in metabolism area. And before that, I did a master's of science in mechanical engineering, biomechanics. So the translation here is two really smart people <laughs> with a lot of experience helping uh other people optimize both physical and mental performance. So for you guys listening, sit back, enjoy this one. Uh, this is an episode that has been several months in the making. Um, I wanted to do some experiments with ketosis on myself. Uh, this Mike and I talked a little bit about some of this experimentation back at Paleo FX in May. Yeah. Uh, and, and the three of us just have crazy schedules. So it took a while to uh, get our schedules to sync. But uh, we're, we're going to do this for you guys today. Um, you know, when it comes to ketones, ketosis, ketogenic diets, all that kind of stuff, if you're not familiar with it, if you want that introductory, uh, course, uh, the 101, we're going to have a blog post for you guys on the natural stacks website. Just go to the natural stacks uh, site. And in the search bar, you can type in keto or ketones and that blog post will come up and you can read about the, uh, the basics and the, the, the foundation of this stuff. Um, there's a ton of research that has come out lately and, you know, over the years supporting the ketogenic diet and, and talking about who should and why they should use it. I want to start um, with that, and, and Dom, if you will, just kind of highlight some of the benefits, and uh, you know, from a cognitive and a physical standpoint of being in ketosis or, or following a ketogenic diet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I like to start. Uh, you know, my, my primary focus has always been seizures, and in the process of of studying the effects of nutritional ketosis, which includes the diet and also ketone supplementation on mitigating seizures from a broad range of etiologies. Uh, I, became, I became interested and kind of uh, fascinated with the effects on, that ketones have on brain energy metabolism and more recently on signaling and on inflammation and things like that. So... Uh, I guess, you know, I could talk about go many different directions here, but I think just from the perspective of the normal person, um, ketones provide an alternative form of energy that uh, has can provide the brain with uh, a metabolic advantage in, in certain ways and can influence the neuropharmacology of the brain and the balance of neurotransmitters that can promote um, 
a restoration of brain homeostasis in people who have a pathology, but also a preservation of brain energy metabolism under conditions of environmental extremes, which we study in our lab with different environmental chambers. Uh, also, maybe of relevance, would be a, a preservation of brain energy metabolism even when glucose availability is limited, which could be during intense exercise or during uh, a fast or, you know, when you're, whenever your blood glucose levels drop and you're hypoglycemic, your cognitive and physical performance will take a sharp dip. But if you have ketones elevated in your blood, that's kind of insurance to prevent against any kind of performance decrements that would be associated with hypoglycemia. So that's kind of, you know, my 30,000 foot view perspective. And then we study kind of all the, the signaling processes and things associated with that through electrophysiological recordings to metabolomic studies to signaling properties and things like that. So we're kind of delving into mechanistically how it's so effective uh, at uh, nutritional ketosis, how it's so effective for so many different applications. And there's a, a pretty long list of applications from weight loss, we're all familiar with that, but a wide range of seizure disorders, about 10 of them, uh, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's, perhaps brain injury, a big thing, a big focus of my lab is cancer management, and probably at the top of the list is really human performance and resilience. So you set this next question up on a team so perfectly, and, and I'm so glad you did, because I asked the first question because, you know, I really want to to kind of set up the, the next question. And this is, this is really the question that I want both of you guys to chime in on and, and answer for us on this podcast, and that is... Um, you know, with with all of these seemingly beautiful applications for ketogenic diet, being in ketosis, whether it's like you said, performance, resiliency, longevity, uh, it has applications for you know uh, neurological or any any number of uh, as you said, um, you know, states where my my what I really want to know from you guys is. Is there a population or demographic who should not follow a ketogenic diet? I think so. Mike, do you want to talk yeah, a little I'll bit about that? Yeah, I'll take a stab at that. Um, there's a couple of populations I think of. So one of the ones I work with is, uh, you know, moderate-ish level CrossFit athletes or people doing heavy amounts of glycolysis, right, or carbohydrate use during exercise um in my experience just go ahead let me just interrupt for just a second so if if somebody is not uh, a master's or a phd in energy <laughs> systems explain what yeah, type yeah. of exercise that is yeah so in the simplest terms for exercise we can primarily use fat we can primarily use carbohydrates then i'd say we've got accessory fuel sources such as you know ketones lactate and a few other things you can throw in there um, but I've seen that people who are primarily doing exercise in that uh, higher intensity 30 to 90 second bouts of, you know, pretty all out uh, exercise that's primarily fueled by carbohydrates. Um, we do know that if you measure the amount of 
basically power or lack of a simple term energy that you can produce, carbohydrates are actually higher than fat. So I found that people who work in that uh, zone a lot of times that a ketogenic diet will be extremely difficult uh, for them, probably because they can't uh, quite achieve the exact same amount of uh, speed and power. Now, if you get away from that, you know, that's a little bit different thing because you you make arguments about, you know, do you need that much speed and power, that type of thing. Uh, so speed, power type athletes, I'm not at this point convinced that a ketogenic diet would be best. Um, the other one, which there's actually even less data on that I've seen, is people who have a, just a super high amount of residual fatigue. You know, the common term may be, you know, adrenal fatigue, as I do my little air quotes and that kind of stuff. Um, just in my experience, those people tend to do better on lower amounts of carbohydrates, but more frequent, uh, basically trying to mitigate everything to less stressful situations in their body. Um, but again, I think part of that may be that the additional stress of maybe trying to get into ketosis, we'll, we'll leave out using exogenous uh, ketone salts for now, appears to be a little bit too much of a stressor for them to handle. Now, if we could maybe magically waver one and induce them into ketosis, maybe they would be okay. But that sort of transition, I think I find it to be much more difficult. Okay, very cool. Uh, Dominic, anything to add? Um, yeah, I think what we lack really is uh, as far as the intensity, you know, and if you achieve nutritional ketosis and maintain it, will it blunt your performance and high intensity that that's a kind of a repeat question I, I get and I, I think we need to focus on adaptation which is probably harder than what people realize so for someone who gets into nutritional ketosis and and kind of maintains it and is kind of in a mindset that they're going to maintain it they need to train their body you know, uh, high-intensity exercise in a state of nutritional ketosis or else you're not going to be able to adapt. I think the body is and your metabolism and your skeletal muscle and your metabolism overall is incredibly plastic in its ability to adapt to exercise intensity if you're training within that state. So if you are, for example, you know, limiting glycolytic flux to to the muscle, your your body will cope and, and upregulate adaptive mechanisms too. That, that's what I think, but I don't think we just don't have the data. That's my speculation. We don't have the data to show that. And my kind of preference would be to train that way, to train in a state of nutritional ketosis with high intensity exercise. And maybe during the actual event, when it matters, you may take a, a small amount of carbohydrates, or even a ketone supplement, because I think both of those things, a large enough dose of ketones, will actually cause an insulin, a small insulin release, and enough to activate uh, PDH complex. And, and that has been kind of the argument in the exercise community that you're you're really going around and blocking pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, and that is limiting your your glycolytic capacity in the muscle. But I think through metabolic adaptations, your body can, you know, upregulate various energetic pathways to compensate for that. And I think 
you can do that during your training and then get the benefits of PDH activation uh, with small amounts of carbohydrate supplementation during the actual event when it may matter. Or during particularly intense training sessions, maybe once, perhaps twice a week, to make sure that pathway is kind of open, if that that makes sense. It it makes perfect sense uh, to me. Hopefully it makes sense to the listeners. Um, I I think... A couple of questions for you, Dominic, on that. You know, you said uh, making sure that that you keep that pathway open, um, you know, by stimulating it maybe once a week. How many or how long would we have to go without stimulating it to see like a down regulation or, or that pathway no longer being available? Yeah, I think it's going to depend on athletes, but athletes it, on the person in particular, but athletes are pretty adaptable and in their metabolic flexibility, I would say, just based on, on feedback. Um, so I think it's going to depend, and I think this is where it comes kind of personalized <laughs> approaches here. People will have to experiment uh, and start out, you know, basically transition their body into nutritional ketosis if they want to try this. And I I just think of it, too, as a tool in a toolbox. And there's emerging, you know, data that suggests that it could be beneficial for some athletes. But of all the different athletic applications, I think high-intensity training, we have the most limited amount of data for that. And I think we're I'm talking with people to set up experiments now that will answer some of these questions. Um, but I think, you know, from my perspective, what I would do and what I tell some athletes to do and have been professional athletes and Olympic athletes that, that are trying this and the feedback that I get is that they basically train, you know, in ketosis and then once or twice a week, like I said, they will add carbohydrates in the amount depending on the duration and depending on the intensity ranging from just 20 grams to 40, maybe 50 grams uh, of carbohydrates and that's a pretty small amount. Mm-hmm. Uh, but their body, they go into the event, into ketosis. Some of them go into it fasting for a pretty long time. And then they, uh, their intra-workout uh, fuel source would be kind of a, a, carbo- or a, a fat-based, maybe an MCT-based drink with carbohydrates, um, slow-burning carbohydrates. Do you have so a- it really depends on the athlete, though. Okay. Do you have a preference for for the source of those carbohydrates? Uh, yeah, it's kind of it varies across the board, but uh, uh, the UCAN starch, you know, that uh, Jeff Bullock was yeah. uh, that that's used by some of the athletes, and then other ones will just use you know things like dextrose or uh, you know high molecular weight carbohydrates. Uh, waxy maize starch or something like that. So it really depends across the board. I'm kind of more focused on the total macronutrient and not, uh, and, and it could be like dark chocolate or something. A couple of people use that. So, uh, it it kind of depends, but I think, but I think it's, you know, the, the amount is kind of what's most important. Okay. Um, Mike, I, I see you nodding. I'm going to give you a shot at this, uh, in just a second, but before we go away from lifting altogether, Dominic, you, you mentioned that we don't have like 
a big sample size, big data on this, but we do have data on you. And I don't remember the loads and the numbers. Um, so you may have to fill in that gap for us. But you recently lifted a very, very large amount of weight on a deadlift and then you reduced the load and did something like 18 reps. What was it with, with like 500 pounds? So can, can you give us the exact numbers on that and then maybe a little bit of insight into how you built that base up, I'm assuming in ketosis? Yeah. Um, you know, and that's, that exercise, you know, really just a kind of a, a maximal intensity for a very short amount of time. So it wouldn't be, may not translate to things like, you know, mixed martial arts or, or sprinting or soccer or something. But, uh, yeah, I've, I've kind of have a powerlifting base. And uh, I did, when I did transition from higher carb diet to, to low carb and then keto, I guess about seven years ago, uh, I realized that, you know, I didn't, my strength didn't suffer much at all. And my workouts were never very long in duration. So... I didn't really get the test, you know, if it would kind of decrease my stamina in workouts more than 30 minutes. Um, but as far as overall strength on things like deadlift, I found that if I was not calorie restricted and I continued to supplement with things like creatine, uh, my performance on the major lifts did not suffer at all. And uh, I did fast, I guess it was a couple years ago, might have been it three years ago now, uh, that I fasted for a week, three or four years ago. I fasted for a week, and then I, I deadlifted uh, 500 for 10, and then uh, went up in weight, actually, in five, 585 for a couple. Uh, but it's it, that's not my – I'm a little bit conservative, and my approach is probably not the smartest thing to do when, when you're fasted, but I felt relatively confident that I could handle the weight. Uh, my best deadlift is, is higher than that, but it just it goes to show you that your maximal strength your, is pretty much not affected too much. You know, in a fasted state where people may actually question whether or not you could even walk, <laughs> and, and I found that to be the case. A number of people kind of heard what I did and then went and did it themselves and. Uh, a couple of people said they were stronger. I kind of questioned that, but uh, but a, a number of people have kind of replicated what I did uh, with with the amount of weight you know that they were comfortable handling. And so I know it's not some kind of you know phenomenon that happened only for me. Um, a number of people have been able to fast you know a, a week or more. One guy did like three weeks and uh, and did like you know, some, some strength feats that were pretty remarkable. So, but when it comes to things like, you know, exercise intensity over time, whenever your body is de-energized <laughs> really with, a, with, uh, in a state of fasting exercise, uh, is any more than like five or 10 minutes is probably going to suffer, but things like maximal strength demonstrations, it's, not going to suffer too much. Your body, in a week's time, your liver actually stores quite a lot of nutrients. So even at the end of the week, you're not even deficient in things like vitamins. At that point in time, your, your liver does a pretty good job. 
store and things. And, but at the end of the week, I was starting to feel the effects of fasting. So transitioning, uh, I slowly transitioned back to eating normal. And I lost about nine pounds during that time. Okay. Um, so we'll shift gears. Uh, Mike, your thoughts on this? I, I know Dom mentioned the, the words metabolic flexibility. Yeah, my favorite that's, words. That's, that's your favorite, <laughs> favorite phrase. Uh, you, you wrote that chapter in the nutrition textbook, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so in, if anyone's seen Dom lift before, he's a he's a freak. So it's uh, been the luxury of lifting with him before. So, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to do a week fasting and test my deadlift, but it's very interesting to, to hear about. Um, it, to me, so for metabolic flexibility, for people who aren't too familiar with it, in essence, it's how well can you transition different fuel sources. So all the way on maybe the right end of the spectrum, we've got ATP, PC, so very, very short duration. Uh, simply put, carbohydrates, fats, you may throw some lactate in the middle, and you've got ketones on the other end. Now, ketones are interesting because the energetic output of them, you, there's a little bit of a debate about where they actually land in that spectrum. But in general, without supplements to access ketones, you usually have to restrict carbohydrates. So I put them on the left end of the spectrum for that. Um, in terms of training, Don mentioned uh, PDH. That seems to be kind of the main regulatory one. Because in my head, I've always thought, okay, so if I think metabolic flexibility is good, which is my bias, to go back to your body is probably very much wired for survival. So metabolic flexibility is very good for survival. If you run into a whole bunch of honey, hey, eat a bunch of honey, you'll be okay. If you can't find the damn woolly mammoth and you're hunting for, you know, two days or maybe in Dom's case, you know, seven days, and you find one, you're still going to be okay, right? So you still had fasting, now you've got a high amount of food. But the thing that I've had the hardest time getting it to work is if you're in, let's say, ketosis for a long period of time, a lot of times just putting back carbohydrates just doesn't seem to work quite as well. Meaning you may be able to store them in glycogen, but you may then for a short period of time or a longer period of time have a harder time accessing them. Right, so it's. Uh, I think Peter Atia made this comment once that you see like these big oil um, tanker trucks that are full of gasoline driving down the road, and you see one that got stopped along the road because it ran out of gas. Right, you have all this gas in the back, but you didn't have it in the tank that you actually needed to get it to run. Um, so I like Dom's point that you know maybe if we do something with supplements, other things, to not entirely basically close off that ability to use carbohydrates. And maybe we can still stay in ketosis, so then we could feed back some small amount of carbohydrates to maintain high-intensity exercise. Um, I haven't quite figured out exactly how to do that, to be honest. Um, but I think with some of the supplements and stuff we'll talk about coming up, I think now it may be possible. And there was also one study that took athletes who were in a ketogenic state, and they did add carbohydrates back to them. And they did see an increase in performance. Um, and granted, it was a small single-digit percentage, but these are pretty high-level athletes, so it was pretty significant. Um, I know we'll talk about maybe the health implications of that too. Yeah, I definitely have that question lined up. I want to talk about that. Um, but, you know, it's interesting that, that you look at – I've heard that analogy of, you know, the, the, the tanker running out of fuel – even though it has this enormous, you know, fuel reserve right there. Um, 
but actually I've heard that more often with not being able to tap into fat stores. So if you look at like a marathon runner or something, you know, we know the bonk is, is world famous. It's so famous that it has a name. We say bonk, people know what we're talking about, you know, and there's this whole industry built on carbohydrate, um, you know, goos, gels, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, And I think that's a prime example of, you know, the body not being able to shift, uh, in fuel sources to go if you're carbohydrate burner or burning and you run out, then you can't tap into that stored body fat. You know, what would you say to that? I mean, is that just an example of somebody having the same issue that you're talking about? Just not just, you know, on a different pathway, not being able to tap into fat instead of glucose. Yeah. So a couple of things on that. So a lot of the studies that have been done show that it's probably not how well your body can liberate fat or lipolysis. It's probably a limit in fatty acid oxidation, so how much you can burn if we're just talking about fat itself. Um, and I have seen data on some endurance athletes who used carbohydrates all the time with really high frequency. And if you put them on a metabolic cart and you kind of look at their crossover point when they're doing a moderate level intensity exercise, uh, some of them don't even cross over, meaning that the point where you're 50-50 carbs to fat, they're pretty much burning carbohydrates all the time. Now, if you're winning like Olympic, you know, performance marathons, yeah, you're probably going to be mostly carbohydrates. If you're, you know, more of an average athlete that's doing it for a body composition result, then I think, yeah, moving sort of down the spectrum to use fat uh, better is going to be a benefit. The downside to that is at some point, fat cannot compete with carbohydrates for the sheer sort of bioenergetic energy you can get from it. Um And the second part of your question is, it appears that in some of the ketogenic studies, if you go super far down that pathway and you keep carbohydrates super low in order to stay in ketosis, at some point those athletes have a harder time using carbohydrates. Now, that means using them to the fullest extent. That doesn't mean that their body just stops using carbohydrates and that it can never be changed. Um, And what Don was saying, now how long that takes to come back, how far is it depressed, if we completely crush PDH, does that make it harder? All that, I think, is is still kind of trying to be sorted out. And in my experience, I've said, you know, some athletes, it seems like it's a, you know, couple days to, you know, sometimes several weeks before they kind of get that back. The, The hard part then, too, is if you want to kind of stay in the level of ketosis, which, again, is a relative scale, If you give someone just a crap ton of carbohydrates right away, you will probably boot them out of ketosis also. So it's it's kind of this balancing act where Mm -hmm. if you wave your magic wand in the perfect world, you go, all right, high intensity exercise, boom, you're using a ton of carbohydrates. Your backup fuel is maybe ketones and fat, depending on the intensity. And then once you're done with that, maybe you want to go all the way back to being in ketosis again too. And that gets into whole, you know, cyclogenic, ketogenic diets, which there's all issues with those too. Um, but I think it comes down to how fast can you make those transitions. And I think unless someone's really been in ketosis for quite a while, I think those transitions tend to be a little bit slower. We probably want them to be faster and more of a perfect world. So, yes, yeah. I know what Go Don ahead, thinks Tom. on that. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that that's all really really good points. And I think the individual variability and someone to adapt into ketosis really 
blows my mind for for some people you know this one guy he within 24 hours his ketones were six he went Whoa. from like a car burner to keep you know and he was a, a soccer player and has found ever since that you know he's had great energy uh but he was the kind of person who was really busy so would go into a soccer session somewhat fasted uh mm. always eating carbohydrates though but uh so he may have been bouncing in and out of you know yeah. post-exercise ketosis but one of the things that mike pointed out that i think can't be overemphasized more is individual variability in various fat oxidation enzymes. And there are many different enzymes associated with fat oxidation, and we know that humans have all sorts of mutations in these enzymes that may not uh, be manifested or, or diagnosed. And there's a spectrum of kind of their expression levels of these different enzymes. And, and even in the... Um, even in the enzymes that are associated with ketogenesis, and that's like thiolase, HMG-CoA synthase, uh, HMG-CoA lyase is an interesting one. Um, i got a couple of papers on this. There's 30 potential mutations in that particular enzyme that have been found in humans. And, you know, in, in the clinical manifestation is that you have uh, vomiting, seizures, metabolic acidosis, and hypokinetic hypoglycemia, which means if they go hypoglycemic, their energy level just plummets and they, they can't even move. And that's basically HMD-CoA lyase is one of the most important enzymes for your body to make ketones. So, and there's 30 potential different mutations just in that, that particular enzyme. And there's about a half dozen enzymes that are responsible for bodies making, making ketones. And I'm convinced that we all have different levels and activities of these enzymes. And I think people who say they just cannot adapt to a ketogenic diet, I think you're probably finding out some of these, these people who have different mutations, uh, you know, in, in the expression levels of these different enzymes. So we are biohackers. We, we want to take these systems and, you know, optimize them f for the results that we want. So based on some of the things you guys have just said, let me ask you both for tips to optimize fat oxidation. Are there ways that we can make that more efficient, faster, better? Or are we just kind of stuck with the hand that genetics have dealt us? Yeah, I'll go first and I love Don's Do you want to go, on this too. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm a big fan of actually increasing fatty acid oxidation as high as you can, you know, without it costing you the ability to use carbohydrates, simple level. You can toss ketones and stuff in there too. Um, I'm a big fan of fasting. I've used intermittent fasting off and on for, oh man, probably 10 years now, somewhere around there, eight, 10 years. Um, and back then when I first heard of it, I thought, oh, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard of. All the muscles going to fall off your body, all this horrible stuff you've been told from all the bodybuilding magazines, which... Turns out not to be true. Um, so I feel fasting, by definition, you're not consuming any calories during a period of time. is sort of to muscle, pretty neutral. You're not going to gain a ton of muscle, but you're not going to definitely lose a ton of it either. The cool part is that with fasting is you drive insulin levels down. And as you drive insulin levels down, you push the body to use uh, fats. And if it goes long enough, potentially ketones too. And, but then I also have people match their primary intensity at that time. 
So if I have an aerobic session with the goal of, you know, moderate intensity, you could use like the Phil Moffatone equation, 180 minus your age for your max heart rate, then I'll have most of my people I work with just do that fasted, right? Because I want the ability to use fat. It's a moderate intensity and things of that nature. Uh, if it's weight training, I'll primarily have them use carbs. You so what, to say? If, if they're doing that aerobic session and like, let's say I'm 30 and I do 220 minus my age is 190 is my max. Mm -hmm. What we want to be in that, like what, uh, like that middle zone, that cardio zone. Yeah. It's the, uh, yeah, I use the 180 minus your age, which is uh, Phil Moffatone's equation. And that's a rough equation to get you in that exact middle zone you were talking about. Um, okay. I hate using the word fat burning zone because that has been so utterly bastardized to no possible end. Um, and it is true without a metabolic heart, you don't know exactly where people are in that type of thing. But, you know, you're trying to get insulin levels low, there's no calories coming in, and you're just trying to get a moderate aerobic effect and you're trying to train the body to use fat better as a fuel source. Because like I said before, lipolysis or the fat that's released doesn't appear to be a limiting step. It's the body's ability to do fatty acid oxidation to basically burn fat. Um, the other part that people forget too is that your resting metabolic rate accounts for easily about half of the calories that's burned all the time. And I keep trying to get more and more data on this too, but there's limited data to show that that resting metabolic rate, the fuel mix of that may actually be very different from one person to the next. Um, it's like Don was saying, we do know that um, in training studies, so I did one of them at the University of Minnesota, a Helge, Gadecki, there's one other one, that the amount of ability to use fat at a low intensity varied from like 20 to 93%. So pretty massive variation in people just, you know, walking around. Um, the downside is you need a little bit more expensive equipment to do resting metabolic rate and to look at what fuel is being used. Um, so my bias is I think fasting is probably one of the easiest ways to do that. Uh, last part, too, is that there's a couple studies showing that fasting doesn't appear to screw with PDH enzymes, meaning that if you took someone and had them fast, because liver glycogen will actually go down, muscle glycogen won't unless you're doing some high-intensity work. Maybe that allows PDH to work a little bit better. So if you then refeed them with carbohydrates, again, assuming this is not an extremely long fast, their body can still tap into the use of carbohydrates at the same time. Awesome. Uh, Dominic, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the question is, how do we get our bodies fat adapted as fast as possible? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think, you know, just kind of in my head thinking of the fastest way to do that, you know, could, could be fasting, but I think, I, I think above all, a, a glucometer could be helpful with this. So the suppression of the hormone insulin, which is driven by glucose, uh, is a pretty good indication, you know, and fasting does that. It doesn't have to be like prolonged fasting. I just think if you do, from a practical standpoint, it's probably be good to do some form of calorie restriction that's pretty moderate and, and also a calorie-restricted ketogenic diet with intermittent fasting, right? And I think intermittent fasting is a lot easier once you've adapted your body to kind of the ketogenic diet, right? Because you can, you can withstand the hypoglycemia that occurs in that, in that fasting state. And once you do a mild 
calorie-restricted ketogenic diet with intermittent fasting, you could do something like a high-intensity interval training, HIIT training. And you do a short HIIT session and then do, following that, you can do a prolonged low-intensity exercise. You know, go for a walk. Go for a two- to three-hour walk. And that will get the combination of those things, a calorie-restricted ketogenic diet with intermittent fasting over just the course of a couple days with a HIIT session and then a walk will really get your body into fat-burning mode faster than anything else. There's going to be acute evidence of this, which would be an elevation of ketones or, or you know, blood or urine ketones you can measure, and that's a direct byproduct of fat oxidation. So you could really, you could really amp up this process. And I had someone uh, send me their blood profile doing this with and without the caffeine ephedrine stack. I don't, I don't know if ca- or ephedrine is still legal now, but they did the, you know a caffeine ephedrine stack three times a day and did that, and it really shot up their ketone levels. Mm-hmm. And it was a pretty good indication that they're spiking up their metabolism just from from the literature if you're not already kind of adapted to that that stack it's increasing your metabolism about 10 or 15 percent okay that's another way i'm just you know throwing out not giving advice to anyone but uh, <laughs> if they want to get their body into that fat burning mode as fast as possible that would be the way to do it and you really it with a calorie restricted ketogenic diet i think it's also important to keep your protein not at the level of like a clinical ketogenic diet level, which is like one gram per kilogram, but more like 1.5 grams per kilogram. Okay. Uh, and no, no, and that's still pretty low, relatively speaking. But that that would be enough to prevent, you know, some some of the muscle loss that could occur. But so that would be my strategy to transition into fat burning as fast as possible. Okay. So then let's let's flip that then and say, um, you know, what are some of the best tips that you guys can provide our listeners to make our bodies be better at, because uh, you guys have mentioned earlier that, that the, I think the goal is, is to be able to have a resilient, flexible body that can adapt and flip the switch between fuel sources. Are, are there, are do the same tricks apply to being better at flipping that switch or are there different tricks that we can use to optimize that? Uh, I'll go first. I mean, my thought is, yeah. I, <laughs> I agree with that. So if you look at a, a rough marker for performance is how fast can you do a transition? So a transition may be how fast can you go from not running to running really fast, right? So Usain Bolt would score very well on that. Um, how fast can you do a deadlift or some performance metrics, vertical jump? Uh, how fast can you switch fuel sources, right? How fast could you go from, uh, let's say, fats to carbohydrates, carbohydrates back to fats, like the one guy uh, Dom was mentioning? Uh, to me, I think that's a pretty good marker for, you know, looking at metabolism, metabolic flexibility, which I think is probably a good marker for increasing resilience, increasing your body's ability to survive. So the first thing I do with that is I just measure people's response. So how well do they do to each extreme on the end of the spectrum? So fasting is a pretty simple intervention. Again, you could use a ketogenic diet. You could use other things like that. And then how do they report that they feel? 
you know, if you're really aggressive and you would say a 24 hour fast on day one, not saying I'd recommend that, but if they report that, Hey, you know, I felt great. Everything was good. I got lots of stuff done. Hell, I even went to the gym and was perfect. Okay. Probably handled that pretty good. Um, if they report, ah, you know, after eight hours, I feel like I wanted to gnaw my arm off and I passed out on the living room floor, eh, probably didn't handle that quite so well, right? And then I will also have people do a high amount of carbohydrates, maybe even at breakfast, just as a testing thing, right? So a lot of people report, yeah, you know, I had a, a bowl of oatmeal and I got halfway through and I'm like face down in it, right? Because I fell asleep. Right. So do what is the effect of carbohydrates, you know, different types? I've even used like um like a Vitargo from Generate, so something that has a really high sort of insulin release on purpose, uh, just to see how they can handle that. And over time I'd like to see them handle both of those extremes quite well. And that kind of gives me, you know, in the practical world without lab equipment or anything else, kind of something to work with and to, to play around. So if they crash at 10 hours into a fast, hey, let's try nine hours once a week and see how that goes. Cool, that was good. Okay, following week, let's go to 11. That's, you know, just the old school kind of progressive overload on it. Yeah, so to pick up from there, I would kind of, I agree with everything Mike said, and I think I would emphasize that for me, it's like that ketogenic transition. So the speed, you know, just, echoes what Mike said, the speed of you transitioning into going from a glucose-based metabolism to a fat and keto metabolism. And that can be, you can monitor that in different ways from performance, subjective feelings. Uh, Some people feel absolutely great. And then others, several people, they happen to be women. I think women may have a hypoglycemic reaction in response to fasting where a couple of them, you know, had even fainted, even taking in sufficient fluids and minerals. They're, uh, and that's an indication that in a fasted state, their body is not making ketones uh, because we know that ketones can provide resilience against hypoglycemia, which would occur with a short-term fasting. So I think the response to fasting short-term, like you know, 12 hours, even like 24 hours or 36 hours, that response is a really good indication of metabolic flexibility. And the important thing to realize is that the more you do that, if you've never done it before, it will be a stress and it will be uncomfortable. But the more you do it, the easier it gets and the better your, your body can rapidly kind of transition into adapting to that stress response. And there's like the acute response, but there's also, it's really active. Now we know it's activating a genetic program, if you will, of that's activating a whole host of genes and metabolic enzymes that makes your body react much more, you know, with much more resilience to the next stress of fasting. So you're more capable of, you know, greater fat oxidation and even ketone production when you go and and do it again. And you'll talk to, you know, athletes that need to cut weight or bodybuilders or fitness athletes that need to diet for a show. And they'll tell tell you the first time that they diet is the hardest. And then every time after that, it gets progressively easier, usually, unless they're doing some wacky thing. Um, (laughs) So, and that's a pretty good indication that, you know, their body has adapted to that stress of 
caloric restriction and shifting their metabolism into fat burning mode uh, because it becomes easier with subsequent um, events, even as they age, like even as they're kind of, they kind of describe it as getting to know their body, but I really think it's their body, you know, that they're, it's activating a familiar sequence of metabolic events <laughs> that they have, they've experienced before and they have a greater activation of, of accessing, you know, their, their fat metabolism of, of triggering that. That's really interesting. Um, I would love to, you know, maybe go down some of those rabbit holes, but I think that's for another day because, uh, we're, we're running long on time and we haven't even talked about exogenous ketones yet. <laughs> so couple, couple of questions okay. on what is quickly becoming a million or billion dollar industry with exogenous ketones. Um, it is, I guess, first of all, um, for both of you guys, do you see exogenous ketones as one tool to help flip that switch faster and get into um, a ketogenic state or, or burning ketones? Or is that just kind of like a marketing ploy? Uh my, I think the the studies still need to be done, but some of the recent studies that come out are kind of suggestive that you know at least if you're putting in that fuel source, you are. And I, I wrote an article on this with uh, Brendan Egan in Cell uh, Cell Metabolism, and the title is "Fueling Performance: Ketones Enter the Mix," and it was a commentary on the on the article that was uh, published in Cell Metabolism entitled Nutritional Ketosis Alters Fuel Preference and Thereby Endurance Performance in Athletes. And, you know, the, the kind of the main takeaways from that publication, uh, which I did the commentary on, was that nutritional ketosis during exercise reduces glycolysis. And these are athletes that were not carbohydrate restricted and shifts metabolic physiology to increase fat oxidation, specifically muscle fat oxidation, but also adipose um, oxidation, and improve performance and cycling time trials to exhaustion. And interestingly, it preserves muscle glycogen, so added glycogen sparing effect. And and I think the biggest thing that from that study, if I remember, there was a 50% reduction in lactate. So by using, you know, proportionally less glucose for fuel, you're reducing lactate. And I think that's significant when it comes to performance. Your brain is also kind of sensing the level of lactate and, and the pH of your blood too, right? And I think that the ketones will be energizing and preserving your central nervous system. And it's your your CNS that's activating, you know, your muscle. So you get greater motor unit recruitment, you know, when you're in a state of ketosis, and that can translate to, you know, more efficient contractions, uh, heavier lifts in the gym, just by kind of energizing and ensuring that your CNS is functioning optimally. Um, so, I th- and that, those studies that I'm talking about, the one study that was done in athletes that were not on a ketogenic diet, so they took a ketone ester. And it was a 1,3-butane-dial beta-hydroxybutyrate monoester that elevated ketones pretty significantly, like in the 3 to 4 millimolar range. Okay. So 
you said that was an ester. We'll come back and we'll talk about the difference okay. between salts and esters uh, as it applies to exogenous ketones. But before we do that, anything to add, Mike? Yeah, real quickly. I mean, I think the use of exogenous ketones is fascinating. And you know, years ago, I said that's kind of a game changer for supplements. And I still get hate mail about that. But in terms of, and I, that term's like so incredibly overused, but I think in terms of the potential that we're just trying to figure out now, I think it has a massive potential because it gets rid of the main issues of the long transition to get into ketosis, which most people have to do. And so now you can do all sorts of crazy stuff, right? You could take, like Dom was saying, athletes that are completely 100% glycogen carb replete and then give them just a, maybe a crap ton of some type of ketone before the race to get an acute effect to kind of shift the fuel mix you could you know combine that with a carbohydrate solution even during which there's one study on that um, but i think we're still just trying to figure out exactly how much of that can be used for a higher intensity or higher power i think is still debatable um, but i think especially as the races go longer and lower intensity it's definitely a huge benefit and i really like what dom said too about i don't think we know enough about the cns effect Right, So maybe you're doing a high-intensity thing. Now, maybe you can be replete with uh, carbohydrates. Maybe you can still access them. And maybe the ketones are just helping keep the lights on in your brain better. Right, So you go back to you know, Noakes' central governor theory. Maybe that then allows you a much higher level of performance, as Don was saying. So I'd, I think it's very fascinating and uh, lots of work to kind of sort out what's what. Yeah, yeah, and I'd like to add to that that ketones are much more than just an energy source, too. So now we know that they have all these too. really potent signaling properties. Like, they function as a histone deacetylase inhibitor. Uh, we published that in, in Nature Medicine that they suppress the inflammasome, the NLRP3 inflammasome, which is associated with different age-related chronic inflammatory autoimmune disorders and, and even some forms of cancer. And there was a recent publication, Journal of Biological Science, that showed that acetoacetate, which is part of, you know, it related significantly with a ketone ester that we study, accelerates muscle regeneration and, and ameliorates muscular dystrophy in, in a mouse model. That's hmm. kind of the gold standard for that. And it was do, what was really interesting about that is it was doing it in a metabolic independent way. So it was doing it independent of AMP kinase and, and even independent of mTOR. It was doing it by sensitizing the muscle cell to IGF-1. Uh, it does greater satellite cell activation. Uh, they also showed that it antagonized the effects of myostatin. Wow. So that was completely new data that just came out like in the last month or so. Yeah, I, so I got to get would, that from you. <laughs> yeah, I, I was going to yeah, say the yeah. same thing. Like, I want to read that, but I also, like, I'm, I'm out of space to take notes on all these articles. So, so um, Dominic, if you can, uh, I'll ping you an email after we complete this, but I'd okay. love to, sure. to get you to, to send me either links or, or PDF copies of um, all of these articles that you're mentioning. And, and just as a note for you guys listening, go to the blog post yeah. version of this. We'll have all of the, the links to articles and stuff that, that both of these guys have mentioned throughout this episode. Yep. So then uh, let's talk about the, the safety. Um, do, do we know yet the safety of long-term use of supplementing with exogenous ketones? Does it matter if they're salts or uh, esters? Uh, do you want to go? Or I'll let Dom go first. Or, I have one other point, but Dom's more info on that. Okay. 
Okay. Yeah, there. That's a good question. I think the one of the most potent exogenous ketones that kind of entering the space now is the beta hydroxybutyrate ester, and it's essentially one three butane diol with the beta hydroxybutyrate connected to it with an ester bond, and uh, it causes a really high elevation of beta hydroxybutyrate, and it's been studied extensively in. Um, animal models, and it was uh, studied also in humans and published um, by uh, the group uh, at NIH and Oxford that worked together on that ketone ester, and it's GRASS-approved uh, at least for five days. I know it's GRASS-approved in Europe, and I think it's recently GRASS-approved in right. the United States. And the ketone ester that we work with is, is a diester. It has 1,3-butane-diol, which breaks down to beta-hydroxybutyrate, but attached to it are two molecules of acetoacetate. And uh, it causes a rapid elevation in both beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate over a pretty long time frame. And it's been studied in mice and rats and pigs and dogs and, and even some human studies. Uh, and we did a long-term, very high dose, 25 grams per kilogram dose, chronic feeding study of 15 weeks, which in humans, it's like many years, in, in rats. And we looked at you know liver function, kidney function. Uh, we looked at the inflammatory markers and stuff too, and saw some really interesting positive health benefits to even that high dose. Uh, enough that it's kind of motivating us to do a longevity study where we take rodents in, in the middle-aged group, which would in rodents is about one year, which would be like 50 years old in, in humans, and then give them the supplement and see if we can extend their lifespan because there was no indication that even a high dose was impacting any markers of toxicity. So, you know, we're doing – and that's with the ketone ester. So that – that would be even more potent than the ketone salts, but the ketone salts kind of bring up a, a little bit of a different issue because the ketone is bound ionically to monovalent and divalent cations, which is sodium, potassium, calcium, magnesium, and these things, you know, you don't want a large load of sodium, so the mineral has to be, you, you have to formulate it in a way to balance the electrolytes to ensure that you're not you're not getting a mineral overload in the gut because that could cause some GI issues, but even systemically. Uh, of course, you know, you don't want a huge bolus of potassium, right, because that could be fatal. So you have to formulate these things uh, with some strategy to ensure not only that you balance the electrolytes, but you also have to make it palatable, GI tolerable, and then ensure that these things are safe in the long term. And we've done enough study that I'm, I'm pretty confident that they're pretty safe. And from a regulatory hurdle, they're kind of easier than the ketone esters because they're more or less found in nature. Um, we have the minerals in our body and we have ketone. If you're eating meat from an animal that was any animal, it's going to have some level of ketones. And if it's in a fasting state, you're going to have beta-hydroxybutyrate in the free acid form in the muscle. So, uh, and the precursors to make these synthetically are, are derived from nature or they can be derived from nature. So you're taking sort of nature based plant compounds and doing some fairly simple chemistry to combine the precursor to the ketone, uh, to make the ketone in, in with the, uh, an ionically 
bonding it to the mineral. So it's a little bit different than the ketone ester where, you know, you could take a petroleum-based compound and then, or uh, a plant-based compound, depending on how you synthesize it. But there's the number of steps that a little more, the chemistry is a little more advanced. And there's an ester bond there that's not found in nature. So there's, it's a bigger regulatory hurdle. So it involves more testing. But I think the testing on those compounds would kind of reinforce and ensure that other compounds that cause a bioidentical elevation of ketones, which you can measure in your blood, which are identical to what your body produces uh, into safe levels, would be safe, uh, relatively speaking. But we still, you know, don't have the long-term high-dose chronic feeding studies in humans. But we don't have that for anything. You go to GNC <laughs> and grab 90, 99% of stuff on the market. We, just, we don't have that data for it. So. Right, right. Uh, I'm really glad you, you mentioned the, the salt um, content because I think that's, you know, I've been experiments uh, for the last few months using um, Keto OS as well as Keto Kana. Um, and, and both are salts. And, and with both the, you know, you're looking at 1.4 to 1.5 grams of sodium uh, on the label per serving. Um, so it's definitely a consideration that a lot of people don't even, you know, realize when when they start playing with exogenous ketones. So I'm glad that you pointed that out. Um, Mike, what, what are your thoughts on safety and anything you want to add? Yeah, real quickly. I mean, I agree with everything Dom said. I mean, I think that generally the data we have now shows that they're probably safe as best as we know. Um, the only concern I have, which is really a theoretical one at this point, is now you can create a state in the body where, for a period of time, ketones are really high and insulin may also be very high, right? So what happens now if I mix ketones with a high insulinogenic beverage? Nah, that makes me a little worried because I, Don can correct me on this, but I don't think there's any other point sort of naturally as much as they hate the natural argument that that ever really happens because insulin is usually controlling the level of um, ketones and that type of thing so i don't know if dom has any quick words on on that yeah it's interesting well dr veach published some studies showing that ketones do not increase uh insulin uh, a bolus of ketones or ketones right. in, in mixed in with the animal chow. And the recent study, I believe, by Cox et al., that was the athletes, just showed, you know, a an attenuation of the insulin response to, you know, when it's given with carbohydrates, the same load of carbohydrates. And we did some studies. I can't talk about it too much right now. But, uh, but essentially what we've demonstrated is not published yet if we give like five grams per kilogram of glucose, like we get a big spike in glucose, uh, blood glucose. If we give five grams per kilogram of glucose with five grams per kilogram of ketone ester, it completely abolishes that elevation of glucose when it's given together. Really? And that, yeah, that is fascinating huh. to me. Um, we just ran the study, and we collected the serum for insulin. So we're running the insulin, you know, assays right now. But we did that, you know, that was with the ketone ester. I don't know if it occurs 
with all the different ketogenic agents. So we're screening like over a dozen of these mm. compounds and formulations of these compounds. But it's fascinating as to what's happening, yeah. what's going on there. Um, but it, it was really remarkable, a huge. And, you know, the application obviously is, is you know, bringing it for type 2 diabetes, you know, where you get a massive elevation of, of glucose and, and insulin. Uh, regardless, we, we do see, you know, there will be evidence, significant evidence that there's going to be less insulin just because the glycemic response was less. Mm. Uh, but we have to, we're collecting all the data now and then looking at, you know, the dose relation, but we, we use really high doses of, of glucose, typically what you used to do like a glucose tolerance test in mm. rodents. So that to me is probably one of the more important, fascinating discoveries that we made. It's not published yet, but uh, it's one of the more significant sort of results that we've seen with our ketones in addition to the anti-seizure effects. And it needs to be studied a lot more. That's amazing. Um, Dominic, is there any other uh, new research that you can leak or, or give hints about? <laughs> My head's still spinning. I'm like, what do you want more? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I don't, we've published some things in abstract form, but I would say, you know, without saying too much, we're looking at the behavioral effects of ketones, of uh, acute ketosis and also chronically sustained ketosis on things like anxiety. Of course, learning and memory has always been kind of important to us. We're doing motor function and performance, as you know, uh, but we're also probably directing our efforts on the effects of ketones on behavior and also inflammation as it relates to different pathologies, even cancer. And the next thing on the horizon is to do like a longevity study, right? So where we have talking about you know, give the ketogenic diet or ketone supplementation or metformin or rapamycin to mm. middle-aged rats or mice and let them live uh, their healthy, happy lives in the cage. And, and then take, you know, blood measurements periodically, you know, run them, do exercise studies periodically so we can assess that and see if there's any survival, any, any extension of life uh, benefits that we see with these interventions and then correlate that if we see it with various biomarkers and that could be something like you know global metabolomics to uh, cytokine profiles to you know something simple as like glucose or CRP and ketones so that's kind of what we're doing now and that's a project that'll probably be handed off to the next PhD student in our lab, but we're doing some of the preliminary work right now. Nice. Nice. Um, so I want to know another question. Where can we get some of these esters that you're having success with? Yeah, they're, you know, they're made in pretty limited supply. Like we work with a chemist, like, you know, you guys probably know Patrick Arnold, but we're making them, you know, we, we get them from a variety of different, um, you know, locations. I know Patrick was the first one to synthesize it for us, and then we've kind of developed the methodology to synthesize it in-house. Um, and I think you could probably, you know, source these things out in China, but I would be very hesitant to 
give them to a human <laughs> and probably even test them and do some third-party testing before putting them in an animal. Uh, so right now, they're really, in our hands, are being developed and tested and tracked towards a clinical trial for a rare disorder called Angelman syndrome, and then also uh, a clinical trial for cancer. So we're, they're not really tracked for the general public and special operations community too. Uh, but the ketone salts, I'll say the ketone salts are just at the infancy stage of development and testing. And I think i completely confident that they can be formulated in a way to be every bit as potent as a ketone ester. It's going to take some strategy and formulation, and the formulation may not be the cheapest. <laughs> I know it's, it's going to be a lot more expensive than the ones that are on the market right now. But I know that the salts can be uh, formulated, and it doesn't have to be a mineral salt. It could be an amino acid salt. So simply combining you know, an amino acid like lysine or arginine or histidine to beta-hydroxybutyrate with an ester bond, that's a salt. Like from a chemical, a chemist perspective, that's a salt. And these things can be made too. And you can even, I think you could make a creatine beta-hydroxybutyrate, but <laughs> we've not got our hands on that yet. Uh, so I think in time, and it may take a few years for this to evolve, you'll start seeing ketone salt products that are increasingly more complex, advanced to the point where you can get ketone levels up near or about where you could put them with an ester. Wow. Okay. Quick question on that, Dom. Is that only for beta-hydroxybutyrate, or could you do that with the other ketones? Yeah, that's a good question. So acetoacetate, uh, we're working with it now. The only stable salt is lithium acetoacetate and oh. you know you don't want to load up on lithium <laughs> but it, it's the bond is very strong you know ionic bond is strong with lithium and it degrades uh slower but it's it's really easy to synthesize you know chemically to make it but the stability of something like sodium acetoacetate mm. especially in solution uh and this is the problem that we have even working in cell culture is that it kind of breaks down spontaneously decarboxylates to acetone so we are working on different ways to to get acetoacetate. So as of now, the way that we deliver acetoacetate uh, is with an ester. And, you know, the ester that I mentioned, it's a 1,3-butane-dial acetoacetate diester, is, gives a really high elevation of acetoacetate and the monoester a little less. Um, but those things right now are kind of go-to ketogenic molecules to elevate acetoacetate. And I'm becoming increasingly interested in acetoacetate because all the animal work from the last two decades suggests that acetoacetate is really providing that anti-seizure, yeah. anti-convulsant effect. And then, you know, the new study, the one that I just mentioned, shows that it has direct effects on muscle protein synthesis and muscle regeneration acetoacetate does. So I become increasingly interested in that. Um, but we haven't, you know, been able to develop a ketone salt that could, for example, sit on the shelf right. of a nutrition store and be stable. You know, we can make it and kind of use it in-house, but we don't, there's not something that's developed yet into a commercial product unless you want to take lithium acetoacetate. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so we're still working on that. 
And the quick question, last on that, I think that for seizure and also possibly head trauma, is that correct? That you would need that one, maybe not beta hydroxybutyrate. Yeah, you know that's a good question. But um, head trauma, if it's a penetrating traumatic brain injury, about eighty percent of people who have that will have seizures. So I think it's really important to, you know, implement a ketogenic strategy for a traumatic brain injury that also prevents seizures, mm. because most people who have severe TBI will have seizures. Uh, but I think beta hydroxybutyrate. There's good evidence that that can be neuroprotective. Uh, just simply because, you know, the CTE that, that you get, you know, from concussions. And, right. You know, lately I've been talking to quite a few NFL guys right. that have this, that have a concern. They've even started on a ketogenic diet. Uh, so, you know, for example, just not only the energy component, but also the neuroinflammation that's associated with CTE could be mitigated just through the anti-inflammatory effects of beta-hydroxybutyrate because we know that NLRP3 inflammasome is really tightly linked to that neuroinflammation. And there's good evidence that beta-hydroxybutyrate can suppress that. Uh, so I think the, the, the big things, you know, that we're focusing on are not only, you know, restoring normal brain homeostatic energy mechanisms, but suppressing that neuroinflammation that's really key for that long-term management or suppression of the uh, effects that you get secondary to the traumatic brain injury. Yeah, very cool. So, like, if, if we wanted to take that and run with it, Dominic, you know, like, as, as people who are interested in cognitive performance, you know, brain power, um, you know, or, or even just looking at it from a longevity standpoint, you know, beta-hydroxybutyrate reducing neuroinflammation, is that something that has maybe not as profound a, an impact as, you know, fixing it or, or recovering from TBI, but it's something that people could apply to everyday life for, you know, greater focus? And is that maybe what you're looking at in some of these cognitive performance studies? Yeah, I think so. I think the... You know, with TBI, you have compromise. You're compromising the blood-brain barrier. There's a lot of things going on there, and but neuroinflammation is a big, big factor in in the overall outcome of that. But there's a lot of things that can actually cause neuroinflammation from common viruses. Like, uh, you know, I just got off the phone with a guy studying herpes simplex virus, and he's convinced that that's contributing to Alzheimer's disease. Hmm. We know uh, HIV, HIV-induced uh, dementia is tightly linked to the activation of these inflammatory pathways that are suppressed by beta-hydroxybutyrate. So many of the investigators studying HIV-induced uh, dementia are considering these nutritional interventions and specifically things that elevate beta-hydroxybutyrate. Um, and, you know, common viruses uh, can contribute to neuroinflammation. That's why we get a headache. You get people that have shingles for example, uh, and I was recently talking to some docs, you know, I guess when you get shingles, uh, the first thing you start to feel, I think it with herpes simplex too, is like a headache. You start getting a headache and that's kind of the neuroinflammation. And that's, uh, there's a number of people have contacted me that they, they have shingles uh, and they've been fasting or they do the ketogenic diet and it's 
above all, it's helped them more than anything else. Because hmm. I think the antiviral therapies for that are not very effective, or, or maybe they have side effects too. So it, it's interesting. Like I never thought, you know, what I'm studying would have implications for things like that. But uh, the feedback that I get is pretty compelling, and I realize this is something that I should be studying or at least looking into because there's some pretty, pretty compelling data to suggest that there's a wide variety of things out there that can cause neuroinflammation. And neuroinflammation can impact our cognitive function and sense of well-being and many other things. And I think nutritional ketosis can can help with that. And even Tim Ferriss, you know, talking with him, he had Lyme's disease, yeah. which is, you know, the, the effects of Lyme's disease are really a result of chronic inflammation. And and talking with Tim, you know, the only thing that helped him, and he tried everything. I mean, he's pretty well connected to try everything. The only thing that helped him was really, you know, fasting and the ketogenic diet and ketones. Hmm. So that's that's another thing. Lyme's disease is another kind of a hot area, kind of a controversial area. But I'm getting a lot of feedback now from people using, you know, nutritional ketosis for, for that because there's not a whole lot of things that can help. Well, this is why I wanted the very first question to be something along the lines of who should not be using ketosis. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's just so many potential applications and, and, you know, beneficial things. And I mean, from a research standpoint, there's, there's obviously so many ways to go with it. There's no way that you alone could, could cover it all, but, but we are grateful for everything that you're doing and, you know, for all the, the jump starts, like you mentioned, the, the PhD student who's going to take that next project and run with it. So it's awesome that you're doing that and, and you know, propelling this conversation and, and advancing, you know, so many areas of science. So, so we're grateful for that. Um, and um, I guess we'll, we'll start to wrap this up. Um, I give both of you guys an opportunity to tell our listeners uh, where they can find more of you. Yeah, you can just find me at... Okay. Uh, Mike, you want to go, Mike? Yeah, MikeTNelson.com. I think I'm on Twitter, probably the same thing, MikeTNelson. Uh, if people have any direct questions, they can just email me. It's just DrMike at MikeTNelson.com and just put in their subject line, Ad Action Podcast. Cool. Uh, yeah, so... You could find me, I guess the best place to go would be keto nutrition, all one word, dot org. And on that website, kind of just a skeleton website, but I've, I have a link on there to my academia uh, site, I think. And that will take you to pretty much all my publications, even books that I've uploaded there uh, for free. So you can kind of <laughs> circumvent having to pay to download them. So they're all, they're all uploaded on there for free download. Uh, if you go to ketonutrition.org, I have links to like all my podcasts or not all I've done like a hundred podcasts, but I've put like maybe 50 of the ones up there. There's ketogenic diet consultants, there's doctors, there's clinical trials, uh, resources, books, things like that. So on clinical or, um, ketonutrition.org. Beautiful. I wish I'd known about that uh, a few weeks ago. Somebody was asking for a ketogenic doctor in LA. So uh, I will point them in that direction. Okay, cool. Um, so before we let you guys go, any final thoughts um, on ketosis or, or anything that we've talked about that you know you want to make sure people leave here with? My just general thoughts are just 
you know, do your own experiment, you know, find out what works for you. I mean, obviously we know some principles from research and science and like Dom was saying too, that there's a huge amount of inter-individual variability. Um, so I'm a big fan of, you know, what is it you're trying to measure? And then also what is the cost of doing that? You know, so maybe you're just looking at body composition, but you feel like dog piss all the time. Eh, maybe that's a high cost you don't want to pay. Yeah, maybe it's okay. Um, so just set up the you know experiment. Obviously, do things we think that are safe. I think research can be a good guide to push you in that direction. And then uh, the sort of me search or the N of one will kind of give you more answers that are most interested in, which is you. Beautiful. Yeah, I think that's that's all great points. And I think the ketogenic, the people ask me, should I be on a ketogenic diet? I don't, definitely not for everyone. Uh, I do know, you know, from my own research and feedback from others that it has, it does have an, enormal, an enormous amount of therapeutic and even performance benefits and, and an emerging amount of applications. So I, you know, I encourage people to try it and to do the research and to, it's probably best, you know, if you're really fresh at this to work with a nutritionist. Uh, I actually have some on keto, uh, ketonutrition.org, some, some sort of exercise people that work with the performance folks and to just give it a try. And, and some people actually find the diet kind of hard to do, but they can do intermittent fasting. And I think the combination of of a low carb diet and intermittent fasting can work really well and put your body into ketosis during kind of the mid part of the day where you're feeling the effects. So yeah, just do your research experiments and, and see what works for you. All right. Final question. Uh, Mike, you've answered this before as a previous podcast oh. guest. So we're going to let Dom go first. And then if you have any bonus ones, uh, <laughs> we'll let you get a couple bonus ones. I'm going to preface this. You guys are not allowed to say sleep. We, we know sleep is, is one of these. Uh, so Dominic, your top three tips to live optimal. <laughs> to live optimal. Uh, let me see. Uh, I think, you know, I have to say take downtime, you know, like Mike and I, everybody, kind of all your listeners are probably go, go, go all the time. But uh, it's good, and you have to do this kind of have some uh, some diligence behind it. But you have to set aside kind of creative downtime every single day, and I think that's super important uh, to do. Um, you know, other than that, focus on relationships instead of just getting work done. Prioritize relationships with people, with your colleagues, and you'll realize you'll get more work done. Um, and take a full vacation sometimes. <laughs> I think we really need that. My my wife forced me to take like a four-week vacation through Southeast Asia, which was really stressful for me to make that kind of time commitment. But, you know, we, we do that. We, we realize we're, we work really hard, but we try to play play hard too. So encourage people to do that. Awesome. Those are really good. Mike, what do you got? Yeah, I love those. I don't remember what I said last time, so maybe this is good. Maybe it'll be the same or different, but uh, very similar. I had uh, relax. That's something I've been working on a lot more, especially the last couple of months. Uh, always keep learning. You know, I think that's just one of the keys. And then also, uh, similar to what Dom said too, just, you know, have fun, you know, because I think I'm very similar. 
easy for me just to focus on one thing and then um at the end of the day you don't really remember all the days you spent working you remember the days and people you spent with and had fun and did things that you never thought you were able to do so yeah awesome well gentlemen thank you so much for your time this has definitely been worth the wait uh for you guys listening go to naturalstacks.com to see the blog post for this with all the links and resources that that we've talked about um Make sure you share this podcast with anybody you know who is remotely interested in ketones or ketosis, uh, anyone you know who would benefit from you know, the things that we're talking about here on the OPP. And uh, thank you guys for listening. We will catch you guys next Thursday. Dominic, Mike, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate it.